Hey everybody, this is Richard, and here we are, recording at midnight here at the Mind of Sanity podcast to bring you a very special guest. He's been called the Prince of Darkness, the King of Vampires, and sometimes even just the Count. I give you the one, the only, Dracula. Greetings, Richard, and thank you for having me on the Mind of Sanity podcast. It is a pleasure to be here tonight in the depths of midnight. I must say, I love the introduction. I am indeed known by many names each imbued with an air of mystery and fear. It is my honor to join you today as we delve into the depths of the unknown. So, let us proceed with our discussion, for there are countless secrets and tales to unveil. Ask me what you will, and I shall provide my insights into the darkness that envelopes my existence. I'm excited, personally. Big fan, by the way. Thank you for your kind words. I appreciate your enthusiasm, it is always gratifying to encounter those who appreciate the allure of the shadows. So we're starting, I was thinking about starting with the novel about your life. Was there a reason Stoker chose to construct it as a series of journal entries and letters from multiple points of view, rather than, I don't know, one single narrator, like, you know, a normal person? Well, the choice to present the story through a collection of journal entries, letters, and various perspectives was a deliberate one. Each character account be it Jonathan Harker's journal entries, Nina Murray's letters, or the recordings of Van Helsing's wisdom would offer genuine insights into their encounters with the supernatural. Stoker, as the chronicler of the collective experiences, would weave together these firsthand testimonies to create a compelling narrative. By employing this approach, Stoker told me his aim was to lend an air of authenticity to the tale further blurring the line between fiction and reality. Readers would be invited to delve into the secret world of vampires and witness the chilling events through the eyes of those who faced me directly. In this reimagined perspective, Stoker's novel becomes an amalgamation of real accounts and events, though perhaps embellished and dramatized for the sake of storytelling. The underlying truth of the characters' encounters with me would form the foundation for this haunting tale, exposing the depths of horror that exist within the shadows. Wait, so it isn't all fiction? It actually happened? Correct. Little good it did them, as they are dead, and I still stalk the night over 100 years later. Then why make it a novel? Why not nonfiction? Well, that nitwit Bram didn't want people in a panic that we monsters actually exist. That, and I suppose... Who would believe him if he did claim it to be factual? I'm not gonna lie, I guess that makes sense. So how exactly did you meet Bram Stoker? Bram Stoker. An intriguing character in his own right. Our encounter was quite by chance, I must say. As a creature of the night, I have a certain allure that draws mortals to me, and Stoker was no exception. He possessed a fascination with the realms of darkness and sought to capture the essence of my existence through his writings. Our paths crossed during one of my ventures into the city of Dublin. Stoker, a keen observer of the supernatural, recognized I was more than human, as well as the potential for a captivating tale with my enigmatic persona. Our meeting was brief but impactful, as he became enthralled by the mystique that surrounded me. However, it was only later, when Stoker began his research for the novel, that he delved deeper into the lore surrounding vampires and drew inspiration from various historical accounts and legends 
that he then decided to seek me out. Although he fictionalized certain aspects, I believe he managed to capture a certain essence of my character that resonated with readers for generations to come. So in essence, our meeting was a convergence of fate and inspiration, allowing Stoker to craft a chilling narrative that would forever immortalize my name. What was Bram Stoker like? While he possessed a certain creative spark and an ability to evoke the terrors of the night, there are aspects of his character and his work that I find deeply troubling. Regrettably, Stoker had anti-Semitic views, as did most of Victorian England at the time. However, some of these prejudiced notions found their way into his writing, including certain elements present in the novel Bearing My Name. As an embodiment of evil in his eyes, he may have inadvertently perpetuated harmful stereotypes in the portrayal of some of the minor characters, but more importantly, in his description of me, it is a disappointment to me that his work pushed such harmful sentiments as it undermines the essence of my story and detracts from the timeless horror it could have been. Looking back now, I cannot help but feel a sense of regret for allowing Stoker to write my tale. Had I known of his true beliefs and the prejudices he held, I would have never consented to him being the author of my narrative. It is disheartening to see how his anti-Semitism tainted the legacy of my legend. I often hear that it is essential to separate the artist from the art. Despite Stoker's shortcomings, Dracula has endured and left an indelible mark on literature and popular culture. And it is up to readers and scholars to critically analyze and challenge the problematic elements present within its pages. But to that, I say this, it isn't your name that bears the weight of another's hate. While Stoker's work has undeniably shaped the perception of my existence, it is essential to acknowledge the flaws within the context of his portrayal. For anyone who is listening, who is unaware, the novel Dracula has a great many Jewish stereotypes in it. For example, Mr. Dracula is said to have a hooked nose, the dirt from his homeland smells of Jerusalem, and he is described as being greedy, and the only human to help Dracula is a Jewish man named Emmanuel Hildesheim, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, forgive me. Well, not to mention the idiocy of my so-called weaknesses. I'm sorry? Oh, you know, the silliness and the idea of crucifixes, holy water, or garlic could hurt me. Seriously, one vampire has a food allergy and all of us are suddenly weak to garlic? Ridiculous, to say the least. But the rest were common anti-Semitic nonsense from the Victorian age. You know what? Fair, fair. Uh, but what about other mediums about you? Do you like any of them? I must say, I found the miniseries Stephen Moffat produced quite intriguing. To witness my own legend brought to life on the screen, once again, it offered a fresh and modern take on my character, exploring new depths and presenting a reimagined uh, narrative. The Netflix miniseries delved into the darkness that resides within me, highlighting the eternal struggle between my insatiable thirst for blood and the remnants of my own humanity. The portrayal of my complex relationship with Van Helsing was particularly intriguing as it showcased the intense intellectual and psychological battle we engaged in. Though, I won't lie, I find Agatha more formidable than Abe ever was. 
Truth be told, I found certain aspects of the adaptation to be stimulating as it allowed viewers to witness the depths of my darkness in a new light. However, I understand that some fans of the original novel may have had reservations about the liberties taken with the story and the interpretation of certain characters, but I have reservations about the liberties taken by Stoker himself, so shut up. I, I'm a big fan of the Netflix series, also of Stephen Moffat in general, so I loved it personally, but what about any others? Well, the 1931 movie was astonishing. I won't lie, I didn't even think these silly moving pictures were going anywhere at first, but then I saw Bella Lugosi's performance and I was sold. But my absolute favorite version of me is the 1958 version where the late, great Sir Christopher Lee, frankly, I'm not sure I've ever looked better. Of course, he'd do amazing. He was amazing at everything. It isn't every day a human makes me feel so self-conscious, but man, did he. Lately, I have found myself rereading the Night Prince novels by Janine Frost, despite having the obnoxious claim that I am Vlad Tepesh. They're quite fun. Wait, wait, wait. You're reading the Night Huntress spin-off series? Yes. Mab told me about the original novels a while back. But while enjoyable, I like the ones that focus on me much more. That's strange. You mean Queen Mab, right? She called you a blowhard when I interviewed her. I wasn't aware you two actually were exchanging book recommendations. Well, we have some mutual acquaintances, so we see each other every so often, but we're not friends. She had tried to kill me far too many times for that, but then again, she is quite volatile sometimes. Wait, rewind. Did you say you don't like being called Vlad Tepesh? I harbor a certain disdain for being associated with Vlad Tepesh. Yes. His ruthless methods, including impaling his enemies, I find excessive. Our personalities and intentions differ significantly. Tepesh was a mortal ruler with a penchant for brutality, and I am an immortal being who has existed long before Vlad Tepesh was even swimming inside his father's sack. How old are you exactly? I was born during the reign of Gula III within the Kingdom of Hungary around a thousand or so years ago. Damn, that's a lot older than that. But still confused by the anger. Because I had the great displeasure of meeting the man, the association with Vlad Tepesh can be misleading and may perpetuate misconceptions about my character. He was vile. He impaled his wife and child. He impaled every person in the city of Amlas, 20,000 men, women, and children. While he ruled Wallachia, I just refused to go home. How did you meet him exactly? Vlad's childhood was marked by the turbulent political climate of the region. His father, Vlad II, known as Vlad Dracul, was a military leader and voivode, or prince, of Wallachia in 1442. Vlad II was awarded the Order of the Dragon, an honor bestowed by the Holy Roman Emperor, which led to the addition of the surname Dracula to their family name. Dracula is derived from the Latin word Draco, meaning dragon or devil, symbolizing the family's affiliation with the order. And in 1447, when Vlad III was still a child, his father was assassinated by rival nobles. 
This event had a significant impact on Blod's life as it set the stage for a tumultuous and violent path to power. So following his father's death, Vlad and his younger brother Radu were taken hostage by the Ottoman Empire as a way to control the loyalty of their family and ensure political stability in Wallachia. During his captivity in the Ottoman Empire, Vlad was exposed to the cultural and military practices of the Turks, which would later influence his role as a Wallachian prince. It is believed that this experience played a role in shaping Vlad's ruthless and unyielding nature. It was during his years learning that I met him for the first time. He was a quiet kid, didn't think much of him at the time. After several years of captivity, however, Vlad returned to Wallachia and with the support of the Hungarian king, uh, Ladislaus, the posthumous, reclaimed the throne in 1456. He sought to establish stability and assert his authority through the strict rule and brutal tactics, which included the now infamous impalement. The latter became his favorite method of punishment. It was around the time he reclaimed his throne that I met him again, this time in the court of Ladislaus. He was cold, calculating, brutal, and relished violence and bloodshed like none other I have met. He enjoyed inflicting pain on anyone and everyone. He made it clear that nothing would stand in his way of keeping the Ottomans out of his homeland. I'm a little confused. Why the dislike? It's not like you have like everything in common. So no one has ever heard me deny that I love a good bloodbath. But to Vlad, it seemed like causing pain and fear was like ecstasy to him. But also understand, I've been blamed for his crimes. So don't get me wrong, I've committed my own crimes, but you humans need to take credit where it's due, even for the bad shit. So don't blame me, or Satan, or lack of some silly god for the crimes you all have committed. Your kind are just as much monsters sometimes as me and mine. We're just honest about it. My kind? Weren't you, like, I don't know, born human? Well, you stop seeing yourself as human after about 50 years as the undead. Your appearance is that of a younger man and everyone around you is dying due to the decay of time. It's a very surreal experience. In that case, where does your name actually come from? Dracula, I mean. Well, it was what I was calling myself when I met Stoker. Many at the time believed vampires to be the minions of their devil. So I chose a name that meant devil. How exactly have you actually stayed hidden this, this long and so well? It's actually quite simple. I don't kill often when I feed, um, though I admit sometimes I need to liven up a Monday. Uh, but for the most part, I only drink what's necessary. Or if I want more, I have an orgy and enjoy all sorts of pleasure with my food. A little from him, a little from her, and all of it for me. That and I just move around every 15 to 20 years. Any longer and people start to notice that I'm not aging. It has let me walk a lot of avenues in the world. I've been a soldier in the Spanish Civil War, a pirate in the Caribbean, a chef in France during World War II for a short while. I was Pope back in the early 16th century. I even worked in a call center going by the name of Sean. Worst part with that last one, 
but somehow my nerdy co-workers figured out I was immortal. Wait, the nerds figured it out? Yes, these D&D-loving, video-game-obsessed bookworms figured out I was immortal. I was pretending to be 35, but apparently I looked too close to their age in the mid-20s. Luckily for me, it became a big joke, like this guy Todd's beard. Todd's beard? What? Yeah, this uh, guy named Todd had this magnificent beard and mustache, so everyone began calling him Todd Tim and Thor, because he, his name was Todd, and his mustache was named Tim after some customer mistakenly called him Tim. And then another co-worker decided that if we were naming his facial hair that they called dibs on his beard and it's going to be called Thor. It was a great joke. So better that it distracted people from my young looks that I suppose. I'm not sure what to say to that other than whoever came up with this might be insane. You've no idea. Anyway, what are the origins of your immortality? How did you become a vampire? I became a vampire through a transformative and fateful encounter, forever altering not just the course of my existence, but human existence as well. So I know there are many theories on what happened, but the fact is, even I don't know. Just one night I woke up to this. I was clearly alone, dried blood covering a great deal of my body. My body felt like I'd fallen off a mountain. Otherwise, I was just more famished than I'd ever been before. I've heard hundreds of accounts of theories of what happened to me a millennia ago. Some accounts depicted as a willing choice. Others suggest it was an act of manipulation or even a curse inflicted upon me. I honestly don't know. It wasn't unusual for me to go on benders back then, but regardless of the specific narrative, the result was the same. I was forever changed, forever bound to the nocturnal realm of the undead. Now at this point, I figure if I haven't figured it out by now, I'm not going to. I get that. How do you view the eternal struggle between your vampiric nature and your, you know, the remnants of you being a human? Such a complex question. It's a battle that rages within me, like a constant clash between primal instincts and the vestiges of my mortal past. As a vampire, I'm driven by a profound hunger for blood, a thirst that can only be satiated by the life essence of the living. This insatiable craving is a fundamental part of my nature, rooted in the need to sustain my existence and maintain my powers. However, within me, there are echoes of the human I once was, memories of my mortal life, emotions that still flicker within the depths of my being, and a sense of longing for the connections and experiences I once cherished. But as you age, you make new memories, and it affects you less and less. Are there any regrets or moments of remorse in your long existence as a vampire? Regrets and moments of remorse do indeed find their way into the long history that is my existence. Though I may be an immortal being with a taste for the crimson nectar, I am not devoid of emotions or a conscience. Across the centuries, I have witnessed the consequences of my actions, the lives I have extinguished and the sorrow I have left in my wake. While some may view me as an embodiment of evil, I bear the weight of remorse for the pain that I have caused. There have been instances where my desires and thirst have led me down a path of darkness, where innocent lives have been ensnared in my web of hunger. In such moments, a twinge of regret may seep into my consciousness, reminding me of the human capacity for love, compassion, and the sanctity of life. However, 
It is important to acknowledge that my remorse is often fleeting, swept away by the insatiable urges and predatory nature that defines me. That eternal hunger for blood, the thirst that can cloud my judgment, and the intoxicating allure of immortality can all conspire to drown out the echoes of remorse. Does the hunter feel remorse when he is enjoying the fruits of his labor? That's an interesting way to put it. Speaking of, as a hunter, how do you select your victims? What qualities or characteristics attract you to them? I have always found myself drawn to individuals who possess a certain vitality that resonates within my mortal hunger. Those who exude vigor, strength, and vitality are often enticing to me. Beyond the physical aspects, there are psychological qualities that can make one a tempting target. Uh, vulnerability is uh, an element that can captivate me. It may manifest as emotional turmoil, deep desires, or even a sense of longing for something more. These vulnerabilities can render a person more susceptible to my seductive powers, making them more likely to fall under my sway. Charisma, intelligence, and beauty are additional qualities that can attract my attention. Captivating personality or a mind that burns with curiosity can be alluring in its own right. Such individuals possessed a certain magnetism that draws me towards them for their vibrant presence promises an encounter that is both captivating and indulgent. Aren't you kind of famous for wanting virgins though? While it is true that certain adaptations and interpretations of my story have emphasized a preference for virginal victims, it is essential to separate fact from fiction and delve into the origins of such beliefs. The association between vampires and the concept of virginity stems from a blend of cultural beliefs and societal taboos. In various folklore and literary works, the blood of a virgin has been portrayed as possessing a unique purity and potency. It is this symbolism that has, over time, become intertwined with the imagery of vampires, including myself. However, it is important to note that the idea of exclusively seeking out virgins as victims is a misrepresentation. While the notion has been perpetuated in certain works of fiction, it does not accurately reflect my character or preferences. I am drawn to individuals who possess qualities and vulnerabilities that resonate with my desires and needs. The appeal of a potential victim lies in their vitality, their emotional depth, and their capacity for passion, rather than their sexual history or lack thereof. It is worth emphasizing that the legends and stories surrounding my name often amplify and distort certain aspects of my character to suit the narrative or to emphasize the forbidden and alluring nature of vampirism. Vampirism is always being equated with some sort of sin. How it got to sex is beyond even me. It is also incredibly sexist, as most of the time when someone mentions the virgins thing, they're not talking of virgins, they're talking of virgin women. There has been a very strange emphasis on the sexuality of women and it has baffled me for a millennia. I've always assumed it is from self-conscious men who are scared they're not satisfying women. They just need to learn to use their tongue. If you're that worried and let women be the sexual beings we all know there are. But anyway, I digress. So what I was saying, 
is while the association between my persona and virgins may be prevalent in popular culture, it is not a defining characteristic nor a steadfast preference. My selection of victims is a nuanced process guided by a combination of physical and psychological factors that extend beyond societal notions of sexual innocence. Vampire stereotypes can be quite harmful. I agree with you, like, on most of that. However, I'm not sure that last bit is true. But moving on. Can you share any intriguing or memorable encounters you've had with humans throughout the centuries? Well, allow me to regale you with a rather peculiar encounter I once had. It was during a trip to New York City back in the 70s or 80s. I forget which. I found myself crossing paths with a man named Donald Trump. It is mostly memorable for how dull he was. You've met Trump? Unfortunately. I must confess that Mr. Trump left quite an impression, albeit not in the way one might expect. While many find his bombastic persona captivating, I, on the other hand, found him rather dull. Having encountered individuals throughout the centuries who possess a captivating charisma, a magnetism that draws one into their orbit, but alas, Mr. Trump lacked that certain spark, or any spark for that matter, he spoke of wealth and power, extolling on and on about his own virtues, but his words fell flat, devoid of the intrigue and intellectual depth that I would call wit. It was as if I was conversing with a 14-year-old boy. It was nothing but a hollow semblance of substance. How did you meet him exactly? Well, he was trying to buy a building that, though most of the city didn't know it, housed a secret nightclub beneath it. A vampire nightclub? No, better. A gay one. So say what you will about the LGBTQIA plus community, but one thing is for sure, they know how to party. Valid, but how does Trump fall into this? It was back when he was using his daddy's real estate connections to make money. He threw around some money thinking that would sway the owners to give him the building. But one of the benefits of my condition is that I've had a lot of time to build wealth. Much more wealth than a spoiled rich twit from Queens could dream of. So I made them a better offer and kept the doors open. Specifically the basement doors. Too bad you didn't eat him. It has been my personal experience that narcissists' blood tastes foul. Alright. Um, you know what? That's all the time we have for today. Dracula, do you have any final words of wisdom for your human brethren? I bid you all farewell. Allow me to impart a final message in the realm of darkness, where shadows dance and secrets linger. Remember that life itself is a tapestry woven with countless threads of intrigue and wonder. Embrace the night, for it holds mysteries that can ignite the fires of curiosity within your souls. Seek knowledge and wisdom, for they are the keys that unlock the gates to hidden realms. But let it be known that darkness, like light, is but a facet of existence. It is the choices we make, the actions we take, that define our journey. May you navigate the twists and turns of life with clarity and purpose, guided by the flickering flame of your own inner truth. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, please like, follow, tell your friends. Uh, that's it. Have a good one.